You know, I'm not going to go off script already. Uh, but in, this, in the uh, spirit of sharing a little bit about myself, um, you've probably noticed if you've been around, I close my prayers before I preach with that same little thing each week. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. My dad is a pastor. He was a pastor for 35 years at a church in Ohio. Uh, and at least for as long as I could remember, that's the way he closed all his prayers before he started preaching uh, as a kid. And that was the kind of thing um, that was not senseless repetition, but I grew up with that, uh, and that became meaningful for me and shaped the way that I thought as a, a young kid and then a teenager and then an adult about how I should approach God's word, uh, that it is holy, that it's inspired, that it's authoritative, and that when I come to it, I'm trying to submit myself to his word and be shaped by it. So that's why I do that, if you've ever been curious. So now, now you know. All right, uh, what I'm about to say next gives me no pleasure. Uh, I'm a Steelers fan, uh, and the New England Patriots and Tom Brady in particular ruined our hopes for Super Bowl glory on more than one occasion. So though it brings me no pleasure, uh, I have to just admit, at this point, it's just sort of a statistical reality. Uh, you can debate over who is the greatest quarterback in NFL history, but there is no debate over who is the most successful person to play the position. It's, it's Tom Brady. He's just the most successful ever to do it. Uh, in 2020, he left the New England Patriots. Uh, he signed with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to begin his 20th season in the NFL. If you're curious, the average um, career in the NFL is between three and four years. He was starting his 20th season. Uh, and in those 20 seasons, 19 seasons, he had appeared in nine Super Bowls. The Vikings would just like to get to one. Uh, it's just true. We would like to get to one. Uh, he's been in nine. He won six. And he was named the MVP of four. So here's a truly terrifying thing. I don't know if you've thought about this. I've thought about this. He signs the Buccaneers. He enters the building, a new player to their organization. And somewhere in that building is somebody whose job title is Buccaneers quarterback coach. Now, on the one hand, I bet that guy's feeling pretty good about the next season. He's got Tom Brady to be his quarterback. On the other hand, I'm sure he had some moments where he thought in the privacy of his own mind, what in the world am I supposed to tell Tom Brady, right? How am I supposed to coach the most successful person to ever play the position? What do I know that he doesn't? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. I have no inside source. But I can tell you for sure what that coach said and did because it's what all the coaches for all world-class athletes do. He sat down with Tom Brady and he said, Tom, we both know you're the most successful person ever to play quarterback in the NFL. We both know that you know more about football than anyone else playing the position this year. So here's what you and I are going to do. We're not going to reinvent the wheel. We're not going to analyze your mechanics. We're not going to go back to the... ABCs of the game, we're going to watch film together, and we're going to look for little ways to where we can make you just a little bit better each and every week. That's how good players become great. I bring this up today because we're continuing our series, Doing Good, and I have to admit, it puts me in a little bit of a weird position, because when I look out here at you, uh, I imagine I feel a little bit like Tom Brady's quarterback coach at Tampa Bay. I've been here for 20 years, and out here are many of the people who in the area of doing good that I look up to and have looked up to for 20 years. 
And so I feel a little nervous talking to you about this. You are my example. And I'm not just saying that because you vote on me next week. It's, it's true. Uh, this has always been part of this church's DNA, at least as long as I have been here. So I want to walk a little bit of a fine line. I want to try to do what I outlined just a second ago here. On the one hand, I'm not going to harangue you. I, I'm, I'm not going to uh, pretend that nobody has this figured out. But on the other hand, uh, you know, we, we are a church that does a lot of good. And we should be encouraged by that. You should be encouraged by that. So here's what I'd like to do this morning and what Joel and I are trying to do all throughout the service, the series. Uh, we want to try and figure out how our church as a whole and each one of us can do just a little bit better. You see, part of the point of this series is that doing good is not a quota to hit, okay? God's never going to look at you or our church and say, congratulations, you've hit your quota for doing good, take the rest of your life off, all right? It's not going to happen, that's not how it works, uh, neither is doing good a matter of simply outperforming the person or church next to us. Again, God's never going to look at you. He's never going to look at First Free and say, hey, you guys have been on a real tear lately. You've got a big lead over the church next door. You can take it easy next month. It's not a quota. It's not about outperforming the people next to us. No, the question for us is the question Tom Brady and all great athletes or great musicians or chefs etc. All of those people ask, which is, not am I good, but how can I get better? So the right question for us all throughout this series, individually and as a church, is where is Jesus calling us forward? Where does his teaching and his word challenge us to take that next step of obedience? This morning, the question I want to ask specifically is this, how can we do better, a little better, at seeing people the way that Jesus sees them? What can we do so that we will see and value and respond to other people the way that Jesus does? So with that in mind, turn with me to Luke 7, 36 to 39. Luke writes this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him, his name was Simon, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a true prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, at the time, just a little setting for you, a little background, it was fairly common for uh, leaders, for wealthy people in the community uh, to invite others sort of from their social class to dinner where they would discuss, you know, important theological or political topics of the day. Again, you have to imagine there's no podcasts, uh, there's no talk radio, uh, there's no shows on TV where you can turn in and see what some of the leading lights think about a particular issue. This was the way they did it. Uh, so Simon, who's a Pharisee, he's a leader, an important person in his community, he invites Jesus, a young rabbi who's attracted a following, to come and to, to talk through some of these things at his house. And while they would eat and talk together, uh, the custom was that they would often, the host would often leave the door to his house open so that others in the community could come into his house and could benefit 
from this discussion between uh, intellectuals and leaders in their community. And the idea was they would come in and, and they would sort of sit or stand along, along the outside of the room. Uh, those, the, the etiquette was that those who were at the table, those who were invited guests, they were there to participate in the discussion. The observers were there to observe. All right, They were not there as participants. Uh, so Simon, a Pharisee, has invited Jesus to just such a dinner. He has clearly left the door open so those in his community can come and hear their discussion. Uh, and we know what we know about Simon is that he is a Pharisee, and he, and he has enough respect for Jesus that he will call him teacher, he will call him rabbi. Uh, he, he's curious, at least, to hear what Jesus has to say on some of these topics. Uh, but he's, he's not sure. Clearly, one of the things he's wondering about is, is this man a prophet? That's one of the rumors going around. Or is he, you know, just a, just a new young rabbi? Uh, one of the other participants we need to know about is a woman. One of the people, we can assume there were many more, who have come in because she heard, as we're told, she heard Jesus was eating at Simon's house. So she shows up, the door's open, she goes in. Uh, and, and we also know about her that she is a woman with a sinful past, but based on her actions and Jesus' response, we can also conclude that she has recently heard Jesus proclaim the good news of the kingdom, uh, to proclaim, to offer God's forgiveness for sins, and we can conclude that she has rightly understood and received that forgiveness. And we know this for the same reason that Jesus does, because she responds to God's forgiveness with the joy and gratitude that is appropriate to such a great gift. But there's a catch. Her joy and gratitude cause a breach of etiquette that brings her to the attention of those at the meal. Because instead of sitting quietly along the outside of the wall, maybe just waiting for the meal to wrap up so she can have a quiet word with Jesus, she walks up to the table and starts washing and anointing the feet of the guest of honor. And so then something interesting happens. This brings her to the attention both of Simon and Jesus. And here they both are looking at the same woman, but what they see is something completely different. And that difference, I think, can help us, help teach us to see people more the way that Jesus does. So let's, let's look at how they both respond. We'll start first with Simon. He comes first in the passage. So when Simon looks at this woman... Anointing Jesus' feet, what does Simon see? Well, Luke tells us that Simon sees a sinner to be judged and avoided. Now, again, we need to remember we're not in a major American metropolitan area. Uh, these are small communities. Even Jerusalem is a relatively small city. Uh, but these are communities where people largely know each other or at least know of each other. Uh, and this is a good example of that. Simon clearly recognizes this woman on site, and he knows her reputation, which we're told in verse 37. This, this is a woman who has a sinful past, and Simon knows it. And knowing that she has sinned, Simon then passes judgment on her. He condemns her. He assumes that he knows enough about her, that he sees her clearly enough to make that judgment. And in his judgment, she is a sinner to be avoided. And again, we know that because of what he says to himself in verse 39. He says to himself, if Jesus knew what I knew about this woman, about her reputation and her past, 
then Jesus, Simon assumes, would condemn her in the same way that Simon does. And he would not just sit there and let her touch his feet. He wouldn't do it. The only explanation is uh, he, he, he cannot know. Um, if Jesus had the same information, he would react the same way because she is a sinner to be judged and avoided. Now, before we're too hard on Simon, I think we should pause this morning and remind ourselves uh, that I would say it's probably not overstating it to say this is among the most common human responses. If we're honest with ourselves, I think we'll find that we all do the kind of thing Simon does here, more or less often, depending on who we are, I suppose. Um, when we see someone caught in obvious sin or someone with a bad reputation, we immediately think that that one piece of information, that one fact about their life, tells us all we need to know. And like Simon, there might even be part of us that enjoys that, right? Enjoys passing judgment because it makes us feel morally superior. It's, it's nice to feel that way. I mean, we have our struggles, sure, of course. We would never dispute it. But at least we're not like this person. So you have to imagine, here's Simon, a Pharisee, an upstanding and respected man in his community. He has in, invited Jesus to dinner only for this woman to violate all etiquette and interrupt their meal and their conversation by approaching Jesus while he sits at the table. But then, Simon sees who it is, and he's not surprised. Of course, this woman would do something like that. He knows her reputation, he knows her past sins, and so he passes judgment. But then he does something else. It's easy to admit, to miss, but I, but I think it's, it's kind of central to how this story unfolds. What we see is that Simon assumes, he assumes uh, that God sees and judges this woman the same way that he does. Uh, this is what leads him to conclude that Jesus is not a true prophet. Uh, try and follow the logic here. Simon just thinks, look, he assumes that anyone who knows what he knows about this woman, God included, would come to the same conclusions he has, would judge her in the same way that he has. And so in Simon's mind, Jesus' failure to condemn this woman can only mean that he does not know her reputation. That's the only possible explanation for his behavior. That's the only explanation for why Jesus is treating her so differently than Simon would. And that, I think, is the question upon which this whole passage turns. How do we explain the difference in the way that the two men see this woman? Is the explanation that Jesus is just ignorant of this woman's past? That he doesn't know who she is and what she's done? Or is it perhaps something else? Is it possible that Jesus knows exactly who she is, but that Simon has badly misunderstood the heart of his God for sinful people? Look with me at verses 40 through 50. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave both of the debts. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly. Jesus said, 
Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We get this brilliant little hint from Luke right away. I can't resist pointing this out. Uh, that, that Jesus is not suffering from ignorance. Uh, if you look in verse 39, you find that Simon thinks these things. He says them to himself in his own head. He, in his head, he says, if, if Jesus knew who this was, he wouldn't let her do this. But Luke, in, in verse 40, says, Jesus answered him, right? So a neat little trick there. Uh, Jesus is responding to Simon's internal dialogue, which tells us right off the bat uh, that Jesus is not suffering from lack of knowledge about who this woman is, about what she's done, or indeed, even about the thoughts within the privacy of Simon's own mind. Uh, and so what he says in verse 40, he answers him, and he proceeds to tell him a simple parable that reveals to Simon that he knows exactly who this woman is and what she's done, and he knows who Simon is. She is indeed a sinner, but she is one who has acknowledged her sin and received the forgiveness that comes with the kingdom. And Jesus knows this, he tells Simon, because she has responded with the joy and the gratitude and the love that is appropriate to such a great gift. But if Jesus knows this, then why doesn't he respond to her the way that Simon does? Well, the only remaining explanation is that Simon's assumptions about the way that God sees sinners are in fact wrong. They're wrong. Simon assumes that God, like him, looks upon sinners with disgust and disdain. But Jesus reveals in his little parable that Simon is wrong about God and that Simon has not seen this woman at all. It's a powerful question. Look again at verse 44. He tells that parable, and then he, he draws his attention to this woman, and he says, Simon, do you, do you see this woman? Simon has only seen sin. He's only seen a reputation. But what Jesus sees is a person in need of God's love, and forgiveness, or in this case, a person who has already received God's love and forgiveness. Last Sunday, I joined Faith Builders during the uh, community group hour. They were talking about uh, the parable of the prodigal son, or as, as we agreed together, the parable of the compassionate father and the two lost sons. And I was talking with a couple of the class members afterward, and, and I was saying that, you know, one of the things that strikes me the, the more I keep looking at parables and reading the parables, I love the parables, uh, is, is that it's amazing when you, when you bear in mind that, that Jesus' public ministry is so short. 
It's three years, right? So just think about that for a moment and imagine that you found out uh, Jesus, the Messiah, God incarnate, a three-year public ministry, and he hires you to, to plan out his ministry, to script it out for him. Well, if that were me, I got a whole bunch of stuff that I would think it's, it'd be a great or very important for, for God in the flesh to address, right? All sorts of contentious issues, complicated things, mysterious things that I would love to have explained. I would have Jesus booked solid with all these different topics I would love to hear him talk about. And yet, when you read the Gospels over and over again, one thing that's impossible to miss is that even though he has this limited period of time, and by the way, no one else knows it's limited, but Jesus knows from the beginning. He knows his time is short. And yet, he returns to some of the same topics over and over again. One of those that we see in the prodigal, for example, is the fact that when God looks at sinners, he doesn't look on them with with anger or disgust. He looks on them with love and he longs to reclaim them. Over and over again, Jesus returns to this, even with his limited time. And he says, no, no, God is not like you imagine him. He is like a compassionate father who runs to his lost son when he is still on the road and who runs to the older son when he's alone in the field while the party is going on. He is like a shepherd who, even though he has 99 sheep, looks and looks and looks for that lost one until he finds it. He's like a woman who, having lost a coin, searches and searches and searches, and when she finds it, she rejoices and throws a party. That's the heart of God for sinners. Over and over, Jesus returns to this same theme, even with all the other things he might have said or addressed. The only conclusion I can draw from that is that one of the most pernicious and persistent lies of Satan is that God looks upon us, looks upon sinners, first and foremost, with anger and disgust. Some of us, I know, wrestle with that lie personally. We know our many sins, we know how often we fall short, and we just struggle to believe that a holy and righteous God could possibly look on us with love. And yet Jesus over and over and over again, rebukes that lie and says, yes, he does. Some of us uh, struggle with that lie with respect to other people. We find it all too easy to believe that God looks on all these other sinners with anger and with disdain. But the life and teachings of Jesus are there to rebuke that lie as well. Yes, God hates sin. He hates what it's done to his good creation. But when he looks at us, he sees people that he loves who are in desperate need of his forgiveness. And we know that because in Jesus, God gave his life to provide both for anyone and everyone who would receive it. Jesus does see that woman's sins. He knows her past, but he sees her too. And what he sees is a person who needed and then received the gracious gift of forgiveness and love that came with the kingdom of God. I have a whole other section to get to, but I want to pause here and just say, I believe what I said there. I do think this is one of the most pernicious and persistent lies that Satan tells 
all of us. And so I'm going to guess there are some of you here uh, who wrestle with that. Maybe it's directed at you. Maybe it's directed at others. And that's what you need to hear this morning. That's what you need to leave with. That's where God is calling you forward. And so I hope that you can just hear that this morning. But I have one other question too, which is, if that's how Jesus sees us, how he sees people, how then can we begin to see them more as he does? How can we learn to combat and resist that all too common human tendency to see others the way that Simon did as sinners to be judged and avoided? Well, there's a lot of answers to that. This morning, I just want to mention two. First, I'll take us back to Luke 6, verse 41 and 42. If you want to learn to see people more like Jesus does, then before we attempt to judge others, before we attempt to remove the speck from their eye, we should remove the plank from our own. That is, before we start passing judgment on the people around us, we need to have a long, hard look at ourselves. Uh, in our passage today, Simon's a perfect example of someone who does not do this. Uh, Simon has a massive problem with pride and self-righteousness. He has a plank in his eye that prevents him from even seeing the woman before him. That's why Jesus asks, Simon, do you see this woman? If he had looked to himself first, the rest of the story might have gone very differently. Now, the point of this teaching in Luke 6 isn't to make us feel bad about ourselves or even to say that we should never look to others. I actually, for what it's worth, I want, I need people in my life who are going to look for the speck in my own eye, who, who will call me aside and say, hey, I see sin in your life that, that you need to address. Or just to check in with me and make sure I'm okay. We all should want that in our lives. No, the point of that passage is that we just need to look to ourselves first so that we might see clearly to do that for others. And here I think the woman is a helpful example. And so I'd ask you just to consider, when you read the response of this woman, someone who has responded to her own forgiveness with such joy and such gratitude, let me ask you, do you think someone like that, someone so well acquainted with the forgiveness they have received, do you think they are going to respond harshly or graciously when they see sin in the lives of others around them? Well, I'll tell you from my experience. I know from my own life, the more I reflect on the forgiveness I've received, the more I remember that every day I'm a debtor to the grace of God, the more graciously disposed I am to others. Because, and Jesus tells us exactly why, those who have been forgiven much love much. And friends, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we have all been forgiven much. We just need to remember it. So first, if we want to see more, others more like Jesus does, we need to remove the plank from our own eye first. Second, we need to stop looking down at others and to start looking ahead to Jesus. Now, I maybe tried a little too hard to make this point clever, but all I mean here is this. Look, we all like to compare ourselves, morally speaking, to people we think who are worse off than us. It makes us feel good, right? Oh, look at this person. They're, they're more sinful than I am. And hey, my prayer life isn't what it should be, but I'm, I'm sure I pray more than this person over here, right? It, it comes very naturally. We love to look down at those around us. Um, but this is dangerous in at least two different ways. First, as Luke 6 reminds us, 
It's dangerous because we are not reliable judges of other people. We've all got stuff in our own eyes that prevents us from seeing clearly. But second, it's dangerous because it creates a false sense of security in us. It can lead us, like Simon, to believe that we, in fact, uh, need very little or maybe even no forgiveness. Because everywhere we look, we see people who are worse off than us. And that, friends, is a dangerous place for a fallen and sinful people to be. We are none of us finished products yet. There is always further for us to go. But if we are always looking down, we are not very likely to move forward. You know, again, I, I think it's only appropriate. It's my uh, candidating Sunday, so I'll throw in a pickleball uh, illustration here. Uh, you know, it's who I am. It's what you're going to get. Hopefully not like every week, but occasionally. Um, you know, in, in pickleball, if you're teaching someone to play pickleball or racquetball or ping pong or any racket sports, one of the things you tell them right away is, listen, uh, where you position your body and where you look with your eyes is very important because it is just the case, it's the way our brains and our bodies work together, that where you're looking, where you're aiming, where your body is pointed, that's where the ball is going to go when you hit it or throw it or whatever it is you're doing, right? Uh, nine times out of ten, you're just going to hit what you aim at. That's how it works, all right? That's what eye-hand coordination does. Uh, now, it's also the case if you get better and you're playing fierce competition in any of these things, in pickleball, for example, it's very helpful if you can disguise where you're going to hit the ball. So if you can point your body one way and look, and you make people think, oh, he's going to hit it over here, and then you hit it the other direction, you're going to win a lot of those points. But there's a reason you don't teach new people to do that. You know what it is? Because it's very, very hard to do that. It's very hard. Uh, in basketball, Magic Johnson was very good at doing this, but that's why he was magic, okay? He could throw where he wasn't looking. The rest of us got to look where we're passing the ball, Okay? Uh, because you hit what you aim at. You just do. That, that's just how it works. Uh, and that is true, if anything, it is more true, I would venture to say, in our spiritual lives than it is in any of those other scenarios. You know, I don't know for certain. Maybe it's possible to move forward in obedience to God, to be conformed more closely to him without fixing your eyes on Jesus. Maybe. But I would advise nobody to try it. At best, it's going to make things much more difficult than it has to be. If you want to be obedient to Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to see people more like Jesus sees them, then you need to fix your eyes on him. Stop looking around at others, being concerned about where they are relative to you, and fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I'll close by saying this. You know, if we do that, I know we say that a lot, that verse is popular, but just from a practical point of view, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it reminds us of the great price he paid so that we might be forgiven. And that, as we've said before, ought to give us compassion for other people because it reminds us that we too were sinners in need of forgiveness. But fixing our eyes on Jesus also reminds us of something else. It reminds us that God didn't call us to be better than our neighbor. He commanded us to love our neighbor. And I have to tell you, uh, we will do better at loving our neighbor 
and at seeing them like Jesus does, uh, when we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. Would you close with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great truth that even though we have sinned, even though we were your enemies, even though we were living in open rebellion against you and your will for our lives, you looked at us and loved us. More than that, you sought us out. You came for us to seek and save the lost. God, I thank you for that great truth about who you are and about how you look at us. And I pray, God, that you would help us to respond in the only way appropriate to that, which is with great love. I pray, Father, that you would work in us so that we would see others as you see them. Help us, Lord, to look around at those around us, not in judgment, uh, not looking to condemn, but rather looking to love, to have compassion, uh, with the hope that more and more might be brought into the family of God. In your name we pray. Amen.